So, um, good evening, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, and um, thank you all for coming along on this rather cold and wet evening. Um, I'd like to introduce our speaker tonight, who's Professor Perry Link, who I first came across way back in the 1980s when I started studying Chinese politics, and he was someone who was uh, translating and analyzing uh, political literature from China and at that time I was reading work from the 1950s that Perry had translated and analyzed the, the poisonous weeds literature as it was called from the 1950s and of course uh, he has carried on consistently uh, following the development of political literature in China right up to now uh, and uh, the reason he's here tonight is because of the latest book that he's compiled and organized, uh, which is on Liu Xiaobo. Uh, the timing of this event, is, I should say something about, because originally um, we, Perry is ex extremely busy, like, like most academics, with teaching and all the other awful things we have to do, <laughs> of administration and so on, but um, the only time that he could find to come over was Thanksgiving, which is today, of course. And at that time, we didn't know the date of the 18th Party Congress in China. Um, and it just so happens that then the leaders in China found out that he was coming, and they decided to have their Congress the week before he came, just to make sure that they weren't second place, I think. But, so, but it has worked out quite well, because, of course, there is much discussion in the air about the 18th Party Congress and everything that's going on in China, the implications, which hopefully we can touch on. But, of course, um, jokes aside, um, the person that Professor Link will be talking about is sitting in prison in China at the moment, and I guess we shouldn't forget that, that as we sit here now, he is in prison in China. And uh, so it's, it's great to be able to have access to the thinking of Liu Xiaobo through the person who has done most of all, uh, more than anyone, to bring his ideas to an English-speaking audience. And Professor Link is going to talk about these issues and then there will be some time for questions and answers afterwards and we will aim to finish at about 8 o'clock. And then there are some books for sale as well and Professor Link will be signing copies if anyone wants to buy some of those outside in the hall. So on that note, um, over to you Professor Link and thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much, Chris, for the kind introduction. I'm a little puzzled as, about, as to whether I should sit or stand. Uh, if, if, if I stand, people over here can perhaps see better. The alternative would be to have everyone over here move over there. Why don't I stand, if this will obey? I don't can you hear? Oh, you can hear. Okay, if you can hear. Yes, I'm here to talk about... Liu Xiaobo, who Professor Hughes reminds us is sitting in prison as we speak, won the Nobel Prize for Peace in the year 2010. And <clears throat> before, he, before the announcement of the prize happened, the Harvard University Press sent me a big pile of materials, a manuscript that they wanted me to be the reader for. So... Uh, said, all right, I'll do that. And it was in Chinese. It was Liu Xiaobo's essays and poems as collected by Liu Tianqi, who's the co-editor of the book, and Liu Xiaobo's wife, Liu Xia. 
Uh, and I started to read. And about 10 days later, they called up again and they said, don't read, don't read. We don't need your report because we've already decided to publish the book. And then they said, will you be the editor of it? And this is a very difficult question. It hit me out of the blue. I hadn't put it on my schedule, and I thought about it seriously for about 10 seconds and said yes. And did. And the result is this book. And the main thing I want to say about the book to you is that I learned from it, from working on it, what a deep and incisive thinker he was and how well-educated he is. Before then, I'd followed his career. I'd actually talked with him on the telephone and so on. But my image of him was as a gadfly, courageous, provocative on purpose, but not necessarily very deep thinker. Uh, and I found I was wrong. I mean, if you need to be convinced that he deserves a Nobel Peace Prize. Read this book and read other things by him. He really does penetrate. I want to begin by reading you a couple of paragraphs that I wrote in the introduction to the book. Liu Xiaobo is one of those unusual people who can look at human life from the broadest of perspectives and reason about it from first principles. His keen intellect notices things that others also look at but do not see. It seems that hardly any topic in Chinese culture, politics, or society evades his interest, and he can write with analytic calm about upsetting things. One might expect such calm in a recluse, a hermit poet, or a cloistered scholar, but in Liu Xiaobo it comes in an activist. Repeatedly he has gone where he thinks he should go and done what he thinks he should do, uh, as if immune to things like havoc, danger, and the possibility of prison. He seems to move through life taking mental notes on what he sees, hears, and reads, as well as on the inward responses that he feels. Luckily for us, his readers, he also has the habit of writing free from fear. Most Chinese writers today, including many of the best ones, write with political caution in the backs of their minds and with a shadow hovering over their fingers as they pass across the keyboard. How should I couch things? What topics should I not touch? What indirection should I use? Liu Xiaobo does none of this. With him, it's all there. What he thinks, you get. I want to start uh, with a capsule overview of how I think he sees modern Chinese history. And I apologize in advance to the serious historians in the room for going very quickly. And I don't mean it to be complete, but I think it's important to get a capsule overview in order for me to do what I want to do next, and that is comment on some of the essays in the book. Uh, he sees the communist movement, Mao Zedong's movement, as more typical of the Chinese tradition of millenarian peasant rebellions and their ideologies, from the red turbans in Han to, to Bai Lianjiao in late Qing to the, the Taiping Tianguo in the, in the 19th century, where you have a egalitarian millenarian ideology backed by a 
a structure that's very hierarchical uh, and promises a new world, uh, but really is motivated most by power of the leader who is leading. And he sees Mao Zedong this way and his borrowing of Marxist-Leninist ideology as more a millenary ideology to use rather than something that he, as a blueprint, really expected to establish in China. Another way of saying that, that Mao's goal was Mao's power to rule China and eventually the world, although the latter ruling didn't come about. And Mao's thinking is rooted more or less in Marxist-Leninist tradition, which is part of the rubric at the surface, than it is in Zhuge Liang, San Guo kind of calculations or Sun Tzu Bingfa, the Sun Tzu's art of war and so on, reflected in Maoist slogans when he gets power in the 1950s. One of the first things he wants to do is the great leap forward Chao Ying Gan Mei, uh, pass England and catch up with America, uh, that looks as if it's aimed at a ideal communist society, but in reality is aimed at garnering the maximum possible power for the great leader uh, who is leading it and extending his power so that the goal of the Great Leap Forward's overproduction is to get enough grain that you can barter with the Soviet Union in order to get nuclear technology and extend China's and Mao Zedong's power. The bifurcation between the level of millenarian ideology and actual reality kicks in most notably in the late 1950s with slogans like Chao Ying Gan Mei that don't really mean what they claim to mean Another dramatic example of this would be women hold up half the sky or can hold up half the sky, which of course for feminists around the world, including me when I was in graduate school, was a statement of equality for women, the ideal of equality for women. No, in Liu Xiaobo's view and by now in my view as well. It was that women can do half the work that I want to be done in order to project my society and increase my power. Then, with these Maoist initiatives, you get the Great Leap Famine and the Cultural Revolution that followed it. And this, in Liu Xiaobo's conception of modern Chinese history, is where modern Chinese history hits its nadir, its low point. And broadly speaking, the history of what's happened since then is Chinese people turning cynical about the ideals and the gap between ideals and reality, and then resisting and then demanding more and more of rights and freedoms for themselves in a more or less secular process that's come right down to the present day. The internet gave a big boost to it, and I'll get to that in a moment. When you get to the reform period after Mao's death. You have Deng Xiaoping in the reform and opening. And Liu Xiaobo has a, an essay uh, on the Minzhuqiang, the democracy wall events, where he's very eloquent on this part of his view of modern Chinese history. 
Reform isn't something that Deng Xiaoping or other idealists at the top designed as architects, as his biographers would have us believe, in order to make Chinese society better. It was more a reactive movement to keep the lid on, to keep the party in power, while demands from below were building up, starting with farmers in Anhui who uh, decided to reverse the commune experience even before Mao Zedong died. And then in the topic of this essay, how the youngsters at the democracy wall were demanding from below what happened. So that right from then until now, the correct way to, in his view, view the reform is something that Chinese people have earned and demanded and keep pressing, not something that is engineered from the top. He, of course, sees the economic development, and everyone is for that, including him. Higher living standards, on average, are good. Uh, But he doesn't see it as, he put it this way, does not like the phrase that no doubt you've heard, we all have, that the Communist Party has lifted hundreds of millions of people from poverty. Yes, hundreds of millions of people have emerged from poverty. But who did the lifting? In his view, this is hardworking Chinese people who have done the lifting, lifting the elite to opulent levels of untold wealth. They're the ones doing the lifting, not the party from the top doing the lifting. Um, Working without unions, without worker protection rules, without an independent press that can defend them, without uh, independent courts to which they can appeal. And if they do get out of line, having uh, police, including plainclothes police and hired thugs to control them if necessary. So the only avenue for expression or self building for ordinary Chinese people is in hard work in the economic sphere, and that's what produces an economic boom. It's not uh, rocket science economics that uh, you need in order to understand why the boom happened. His hope for China today, and he has an essay called To Change a Regime by Changing Society, which, by the way, was one of the articles that was cited at his trial as evidence of his crime of subversion of the state, where he uses this phrase regime change, which, of course, is a very dangerous phrase to use, and he knows it, uh, but he says that that is the only ultimate hope for China to get out of the bind that it's in, regime change. But having said that, the next thing he says is it it isn't easy, and it won't be easy, and it won't be fast. He doesn't see a leader like Jiang Jingguo in Taiwan or Gorbachev in the Soviet Union who did things that made it possible from the top to have a regime change. And he doesn't favor and he doesn't predict violent regime change. His whole philosophy that we could get to more in a moment of no enemies, no hatred, is that it's not people that are the problem, it's the system in which the whole society is trapped that is the problem. So, what hope is there then? 
He says it's from the ground up, and this is his continuing theme of saying that ever since the disasters of late Maoism, the development from the bottom is where the hope for China lies. And in the end of the essay, more or less addresses his fellow Chinese citizens by saying, how can you help? Be an authentic person in your daily life. Be an honest person. Just keep going. You'll get slapped down. You might have to retreat. The regime then retreats, and you keep going. And he sees in this push and pull and push and pull a gradual improvement. And that's where his hope is. So that's my capsule overview of how he sees recent Chinese history. I want to spend just a few moments reviewing a couple of turning points in his biography Uh, because I think they're important to understand him, but I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. He's born in 1955 in Changchun in northeast China, and that means that he was 11 years old when the Cultural Revolution came and his schools were closed. But then he writes in an essay that that was actually a sort of blessing in disguise for him, that he didn't have to go to school. He has a very lively, active mind, and he started reading on his own, and he thought that his reading and thinking on his own was more useful in the long run for him than going to school under a Maoist curriculum would have been. He says the most important lesson he he learned from the footlooseness during the Cultural Revolution was that you have to think for yourself. You have your own brain. You need to learn to rely on it. I need to learn to rely on it. In 1977, the Gaokao, the examinations for university, were revived, and he took them, and he did well, and he went to Jilin Baxue, Jilin University, in 1978 to study Chinese literature, graduated in 82, and then went to Beijing normal university for graduate study and finished a PhD in 88, writing a dissertation on aesthetics and human freedom. He was already pretty famous as a grad student commenting on writers and cultural topics, but in his topic for his dissertation, this phrase human freedom is sort of the beginning of his later interest in politics where the essays in this book are mostly focused. Uh, after his PhD, he was kept at Beijing, University, Beijing Normal University as a lecturer, which was a big honor, still is in China, to be kept at your home institution as a teacher. He was a successful teacher, popular teacher. Students came to his classes uh, eagerly. During his graduate student career, he was al- already known as an iconoclast, a very blunt-speaking truth teller. There's an interesting combination about his character. You have on the one hand, very blunt in your face, here's what I think of you and at the same time, I don't want to be your enemy, I'm just telling you what I think of you. So Haoran was no better than a hired gun. Wang Meng was a clever equivocator and not much more. He got in a big standoff with Wang Meng at a conference in 1985 or 6. his friends, like Han Shaogong and Zheng Yi, who were seeking roots, Xun Gun, were making the mistake of thinking that all of these gun were so good to Xun and that they're really not that useful. Uh, Liu Binyan, the investigative journalist, who very critical of the regime and whom he admired, 
makes the mistake of trusting too much that there will be reform from above, from a figure like Huilbang or something like that. Even Liu Binyan is making a mistake. In 1986, he wrote, I can sum up what's wrong with Chinese writers in one sentence. They can't write creatively themselves. They simply don't have the ability because their very lives don't belong to them. That harks back to his self-education during the Cultural Revolution. You have to have your life belong to yourself before you can start to be a writer of any kind. Now, I want to mention 1989 because in that year, two things happened that were crucial turning points in his intellectual development. The first was that he traveled to Europe and the United States in 1988-89 and was disillusioned with what he found in the West. He went to a conference on Chinese film at the University of Oslo and found the European sinologists there could barely speak Chinese and were way too willing to accept at face value what the Chinese government said as true. And the conference itself was, this is a direct quote, agonizingly boring. 98% of the Han Xuejia are useless. They were his hosts at the same time. Here you see no enemies, no hatred in action, you know, but frank talk. Then he went to New York, to Columbia University, where postmodernist jargon turned him off considerably. Uh, Whereas he went to the modern museum, Metropolitan Museum of Art, and was suddenly struck by Uh, the need for completeness of the human being. He almost had a transcendental experience about what it is to be a full, authentic person. And he found that Western civilization that he'd been idolizing since then wasn't the answer anymore. He had just written a book that was being published right at that time in Taiwan called Politics and modern Chinese intellectuals. And in this book, we translate an epilogue that he wrote in 1989 to that book, where he essentially says the whole book is wrong or based on the wrong premise. I'll read you directly something from what he wrote. My tendency to idealize Western civilization arose from my nationalistic desire to use the West in order to reform China. But this has led me to overlook the flaws of Western culture, exaggerating its merits and at the same time exaggerating my own merits. This is another remarkable thing about him in my view. He's very hard on himself when he thinks that he was wrong and he says so. I have viewed the West as if it were not only the salvation of China, but also the natural and ultimate destination of all humanity in the past. But now, I realize that Western civilization, while it can be useful in reforming China in its present stage, cannot save humanity in an overall sense. If I, as a person who has lived under China's autocratic system for 30 years, want to reflect on the fate of humanity or how to be an authentic person, I have no choice but to carry out two critiques simultaneously. Number one, I must still continue to use Western civilization as a tool with which to critique China. But number two, use my own creativity in order to critique the West. 
And this second task struck him as very difficult. He goes on to say, I suddenly found myself at a loss, trapped in an awkward position and shaken. It struck me like a bolt from the blue that I'd been attacking an obsolete culture, meaning China's, with a weapon that is itself only a bit less obsolete. Now looking plainly at myself, I can suddenly see that I am no theorist, no personage of note, and but a common person who must begin from scratch. He criticizes even the great writer Lu Xun for this. Lu Xun is so good at criticizing China and analyzing things, but when he comes to stare at the grave, he turns away and he can't look anymore. And that transcendental kind of feeling uh, was a turning point for him. At the same time, in 1989, you know there was a gathering demonstration in Beijing and in about 30 other Chinese cities for democracy uh, and more openness and human rights. And he wrote this, I hope I'm not the type of person who, standing at the doorway to hell, strikes a heroic pose and then starts frowning in indecision. So he jumps on an airplane in late April of 1989 and flies from New York back to Beijing, goes to Tiananmen Square, goes among the students, talks with them, begins a hunger strike and writes on June 2nd a hunger hunger strike declaration that's translated in our book where he writes, we must begin to build democracy in China in a spirit of tolerance and with conscious cooperation. A democratic society is not built on hatred or enmity. It is built on consultation, debate, and voting that are carried out on a basis of mutual respect, tolerance, and willingness to compromise. Now, today in London, England, those words might seem like, yes, of course, that's common knowledge. In that context, you had angry students in the square swearing that they're ready to die you had troops of the government marshaled on the outside of the city ready to come in at any time. And two days later, they did come in, and there was a massacre. Extremely tense, confrontational, angry kind of situation. He writes about no enmity, no uh, mutual respect, tolerance, these kinds of things. Uh, so I think that, too, was a turning point for him. Certainly what happened in the massacre was a turning point. Um, he put into action this philosophy of compromise at Tiananmen Square by going with his friend Hou Dejian and others to the uh, approaching troops and negotiating a exit from Tiananmen Square for a lot of the students. Now, my friend Jonathan Mursky, who's in the audience, was in Tiananmen Square too, and he can tell you that there were killings in the square and so on, but... Quite a few of the students did exit from the <clears throat> southeast corner of the square because of Liu Xiaobo's uh, negotiation with the troops. Uh, and later, um, he himself took refuge in the diplomatic quarter in, I forgot who it was, it was a Latin American diplomat, a friend of his, and he went to his apartment and later felt very self-critical about that, extremely disappointed in himself for taking refuge 
during the aftermath of the massacre. The first piece in our book is a compilation of accounts by the Tiananmen Mothers leader, Ding Zilin, of survivors of the massacre and what happened. And they're very moving accounts about people who saw wounded and were pulling them back and sometimes lost their own lives for trying to help in the aftermath. He was in the diplomatic quarter when that was going on. And when he learned later that others had died when he was hiding, he felt terrible about it. And the image of the ones who died at Tiananmen Square looms over the rest of his career, I'm sure to the present day. Every year on June 4th, he writes a poem to commemorate the lost souls of Tiananmen, as he calls them. Uh, I'm going to read you just the first part of one of these poems. He wrote it on the 10th anniversary in 1999, called Standing in the Execrations of Time. I don't entirely like the word execrations there. It's too pompous in English. The, The curses of time, the blaming of time. Uh, Anyway, the first lines go like this. To me, standing amid the execrations of time that day seems so strange. Ten years ago this day, dawn, a bloody shirt, sun, a torn calendar, all eyes upon this single page, the world a single outraged stare. Time tolerates no naivete, the dead rage and howl till the earth's throat grows hoarse. Gripping the prison bars, he was in a labor camp when he wrote this poem. And I don't think they're quite prison bars here. These are metaphorical prison bars. He's in incarceration, though. Gripping the prison bars this moment, I must wail in grief, for I fear the next so much I have no tears for it remembering them, the innocent dead, I must thrust a dagger calmly into my eyes, must purchase with blindness a clarity of the brain, for that bone-devouring memory is best expressed by refusal. That's part one of the poem. It's got about eight parts, and I won't read the other ones for you. You can Look at them in the book if you like. <clears throat> anyway, for his efforts at Tiananmen, the Chinese government declared him a black hand behind the counter-revolutionary riot. <clears throat> and two days later, on June 6th, he was sent to Qincheng Prison, the elite prison outside Beijing, uh, for about 18 months, <clears throat> where he wasn't mistreated. He had his own room, a reasonable bed, and reasonable food. He says later... I was deathly bored, but that's about it. At the same time, he was fired from his job at Beijing Normal University so that when he came out, he didn't have a job and began to write political essays. He turned a corner from writing primarily cultural criticism to primarily political system at that juncture and, of course, couldn't publish the essays inside China. He published them in Hong Kong and U.S. Uh, Chinese language magazines like Minzhu Zhongguo and Zhengming and uh, Kaifang and so on. And of these essays, 24 of them uh, are in our book, uh, written from the early 1990s through 2008. 
Uh, and now I want to use some time to just give you a sampling of what some of these essays are. He has three of them uh, that touch on the question of the internet, which has been very important for him. One we call in our translation, Long with the Internet, where he uh, mentions, he says that the internet is, must be God's gift to the Chinese people. And parenthetically, let me just say here, People have speculated on whether he's a Christian or not. He wasn't when he went to prison. I think he probably isn't. But he does have some poems and essays that are very adulatory of Jesus Christ. He's people that are like martyrs in the West, Christ and Mohandas Gandhi and Martin Luther King, this kind of person who eventually dies for principle, clearly resonates with the way he thinks. And I think the way he thinks about himself but that's a digression. I'm going back to the internet now. The internet became very important in the first decade of the 21st century because it was an independent news source for ordinary people that they hadn't had before. It was the first medium in the history of the People's Republic of China that the party couldn't control. In the 50s, there was radio, and then, of course, magazines and books and television followed, and there was effective control all the way along through editorial boards and psychological <clears throat> intimidations of editors and writers. But when you get to the internet, <clears throat> of course, there's big effort to control it. The Let me grab some water here. I apologize for my, my voice. Tens of thousands of internet police are active as we speak in China. There's and it is quite well controlled, but never completely controlled, and it can't be. Too many people have access, too many people now have cell phones, and there's a train crash in Zhejiang, and the news gets out, and so on, that wasn't there 10 or 15 years ago. So the, the new news source not only is important in itself, but it obliges, in his argument, the official media to be more truth-telling and forthcoming, too, because they have to compete with this informal news source. And, of course, there are idealistic Chinese journalists inside the system who are ready to do this anyway. So the supply of better news has come because of the Internet. Secondly, and almost more importantly, the Internet has given Chinese people a new pinghai, a new platform to express their own views. Now, we know, of course, the Chinese constitution does have the phrase freedom of assembly in it, but until the internet, if you took, had a meeting, a meeting this big of people that wasn't sponsored by the party or that the party didn't, knew that it, didn't know that it can, could control easily if it wanted, you would be disbanded, dispersed. You can't have a physical meeting that is illicit. But with the internet... You can still meet even while not meeting. Physically, you're still atomized. Everyone is in front of a computer, but you can get online, share. You can have chat rooms, and you can even organize petitions. You can edit. He's got one very charming passage where he says, in the mid-1990s to the mid-2000 decade, there's a huge difference for him as an activist in trying to organize petitions. Because in the mid-90s, when he did some of this, 
He had to draft something, <clears throat> show it to a friend, hop on his bicycle, go all over Beijing, show it to another friend, take other opinions, get on his bicycle. So it took two weeks to get a petition signed by two dozen people. But now, with the internet, everybody stays where they are. You put it up there. You can invite signatures. You can invite editing. You can do everything you used to do, but much easier. But not just for conspicuous dissidents like him, he makes the argument that the pingtai function, the platform function of the internet has been very important for ordinary netizens all across China. He has an essay in our book called The Significance of the Wang'an Incident. You probably remember Wang'an is in Guizhou and a few years ago there was an incident there where uh, a young woman was raped and, and killed and then tossed in the river and two uh, perpetrators were apprehended and brought to the police and interrogated and then released because they were the sons of powerful local leaders and they were released. But this got out on the internet and spread and there was a demonstration in the following days at the offices of the local administration. And Liu Xiaobo documents all this, talks about it, but then makes the crucial point that why did so many people come out and surround the, the county offices at Wang'an? People who didn't know that young woman, people who weren't involved, but they saw the story on the internet. And here's his crucial point. They reflexively sympathized with the victims. And then he asks, why would so many people read about an event not connected to them and reflexively sympathize with the victims? Well, because in their daily life, they've seen similar things. They know what it's like to be a victim. So it brings together a much larger group, even than the group that's originally involved with the incident. <clears throat> He has another essay called Imprisoning People for Their Words that pushes this one, one step further in this sense. He argues that there's a sort of an educational benefit of this kind of cyber assembly. And he takes the issue of imprisoning people for their words as the issue. Now, he's a spectacular example of that himself. He, today, as we speak, is sitting in prison for his words. And the other conspicuous dissidents, you can think of Ai Weiwei and Tang Biao and others, stand on that principle that my words shouldn't put me in prison. But the point he makes I think is a wonderful point in this essay, is that the internet is helping ordinary people all across China to learn that message, not because of him, not because of Ai Weiwei or other famous dissidents, and not because of Qiang Wai, the outside of the Great Wall, Great Firewall opinion from the West. He says people in the West, like us maybe, sometimes think that if ideas of human rights and not going to freedom of speech and so on are going to go into China, they have to go over the wall from the outside. And of course, he's in favor of that, and that's true. But the point of this essay is to say, even if there's no outside, even if there's no you know, US Constitution or Human Rights Watch or something else, or Ai Weiwei's or Liu Xiaobo's, 
People in local areas are learning the lesson that you shouldn't go to prison for your words because of the internet and the way it works. He starts the essay with six concrete examples where people in different very small towns or villages are bullied, mistreated, word gets out on the internet, people protest, and the leaders, the local leaders then, have to back down. In some cases, even pay reparations to the victims. And he says, so, what are those people learning? They're learning that it's wrong to send people to prison for their words, and they're doing it without my help, without Human Rights Watch help, without any Chiangwai stuff help. Okay. Um, I want to shift to another topic here. Uh, watch the time a little bit. He is somewhat unusual among the tradition of so-called Chinese dissidents in that he pays a lot of attention to farmers. Uh, he has two essays on the problem of uh, taking land from farmers, which, as you know, is, has been in recent times a, a big issue. One is called State Ownership of Land is the Authority's Magic Wand for Forced Eviction. Forced eviction, moving off your land so that we can do development. Uh, and the key phrase here is magic wand. As you may know, all land in China is legally owned by the state. You can have long-term leases. You can buy an apartment in Shanghai or Beijing and be pretty sure that you can keep it and it has an investment value and so on. But at bottom, it's like in U.S. law, the doctrine of eminent domain. The government can remove you if it wants. And what happens in these cases that he talks about is that local power holders in collusion with local entrepreneurs want to build a new mall or development or some kind and use this principle, this magic wand of state ownership of land in order to appropriate the land from the farmers. He has another essay called Land Manifestos of Chinese Farmers where he looks at their side of it. And again, he starts with three concrete examples from different parts of China of farmers who say, no, we're not going to recognize that principle. We're not going to let you take our land. And they protest and fight back with mixed results, to be sure. But his point is that the consciousness that we should be able to do this is now theirs. When we think of rights consciousness, wage and issue, normally we think of this as, you know, intellectuals are doing this and so on and urbanites, but his point here is that farmers are learning Wei Chan Yish. This land was ours in the Tang Dynasty, the Song Dynasty. Our ancestors have always lived here. You took it from us in the 1950s in the land reform, and now you want to take it back. And whether it goes this way or that way, it's all to benefit you. No, we're not going to do it anymore. He's, quick summary of what these farmers' petitions say. Now, the reason I say those efforts aren't always successful is that you have a lot of pushback at the local levels from local power holders who resist and, and usually win. The most dramatic essay in the book that illustrates this is about the China's black kilns uh, you may remember a few years ago, 2007, there was a, 
an expose that I'm sure hit the London newspapers. It was in the New York newspapers about um, more than a thousand children in Shanxi who were working in coal mines who had been kidnapped from neighboring Henan. Uh, some of the parents, of course, found their children missing. One found an idealistic journalist and inside the system journalist who went and made a report on it and it got out and then it was very embarrassing and it even hit the world press. So he reviews this, but then writes this near the end of the essay. The mighty government, meaning the Chinese government here, the mighty government with all its advantages and vast resources is not ready to do battle with the Chinese underworld. The first priority of officials is always to serve the higher-ups because, in effect, that serves one's own career and not to serve the people below. In China, the underworld and officialdom have inter penetrated and become one. Criminal elements have become officialized as officials have become criminalized. Underworld chiefs carry titles in the National People's Congress and the People's Political Consultative Conference, while civil officials rely on the underworld to keep the lid on society. You won't be surprised to learn that this essay was another that was cited in his trial as evidence for subversion of state power. He has, in my view, a wonderful essay on humor. Uh, From wicked satire to ugao, and we don't try to translate ugao because it's too hard to it. In English, you could say satire or spoof or uh, sarcasm or any kind of, and it can be a noun or a verb. Ugao can be a verb or a noun. and no English word captures it all, so we just used ugao. It starts by talking about Wang Shuo to Wang Xiaobo to Han Han, and, and then internet ugao is what it's about. And he raises the question of whether political humor, political jokes in China, have become a safety valve that actually serves the purposes of stability for the regime, because other Chinese intellectuals make this argument. And he does a very fair job, in my view, of making that argument as powerful as he can before he goes on to argue the other side. The safety valve argument is that you know, you're being picked on by your local official and you feel resentment and, and you crack jokes and ah, you laugh and you laugh it off and, ah, and you go back to your rut. Therefore, it's a safety valve. He says, that probably happens, that's true, but it's still better to have political satire than not because, for one, this satire reaches just as far as the corruption that it satirizes reaches. And that means virtually everywhere, right? How else can you get anything unofficial spread everywhere if you don't have that fact at work? Uh, He makes a here his erudition pops in again. He makes a very easy and I think insightful uh, comparison to Czechoslovakia and Václav Havel versus Milan Kundera. Kundera writes, you know, about laughter and political satire, and it spreads in Czechoslovakia. On the other hand, you have Václav Havel, who's the conspicuous, principled, you know, on the soapbox dissident 
pronouncing universalistic principles. And he asks, which is more important in the transition in Czechoslovakia, Havel or Kundera? And he says, both. Of course, he sees himself more as the Havel type, but this Ugao as the Kundera type effect in China. Because it spreads everywhere and because, and here's really the crown of this essay, it can prepare the ground for significant political change. I'll read you what he says. In China, political jokes have already been making it clear for some time now that the legitimacy of the dictatorship is unsustainable. This means that an end, when it does come, will not be so much of a shock. This generosity is coming out in a sense. People will be able to take it more easily in stride, and this will have the benefit of reducing anxieties and lessening the likelihood that people will seek violent revenge, another way to have a regime change without violence. Because jokes had been letting people blow off steam, blow off their anger all along, they will have less accumulated anger to deal with. And in addition to that, the positive values that have underlain political jokes, what he means by that is that any satiric joke is satirizing something that's wrong, but implicitly, therefore, implying something else is better or something else is right. So there's a positive side to satire. So this uh, positive side... Positive values that have underlain political jokes will be available for use after the transition. He has an essay about sex, you'll be glad to know. It's called The Erotic Carnival in Recent Chinese History. That starts this way. In the years since the Tiananmen Massacre, the rampant materialism of the power elite's moves to privatize wealth has given rise in China to a consumer culture that has grown ever more hedonistic, superficial, and vulgar. And the social function of this materialism has been to bolster the dictatorial political power. Sarcasm in the entertainment world has turned into a kind of spiritual massage that numbs people's consciences and paralyzes their memories. He brings us, it's a long essay, he brings us from, you know, the Mao era, the Yang Banshi and stuff, when the hero and hero and the extent of sex there is sort of a sideways glance and stuff, to after Mao, Zhang Jie writes her, uh, love must not be forgotten through the 80s to the 90s until now on the stands you see this extremely explicit, not to say sometimes violent and ugly sexual or erotic carnival that bleeds over into life too. I mean, he comments in passing that he regrets that China has more prostitutes than any other country in the world. And there are banquets that are given where a nude female body is spread on the table and then the tie are put on top of this to extreme cases, and he knows they're extreme cases, but it shows this long-term expansion of this interest in erotic game-playing, which he sees as a diversion, in his view, from the serious moral and political principles that he cares about. And then he's got, near the end, a very powerful, in my view, 
argument about the intersection between this erotic interest and supranationalism, which he's opposed to. Um, he tells the story of the female broadcaster, you may remember this from a few years ago, named Zhao Wei, who inadvertently bought a dress that had on the side a white dress with a red spot that um, super nationalist sort of fun-ching, angry youth types on the internet saw as the Japanese flag. And then on the internet started this campaign against her, saying, you know, if you want to be a whore for the Japanese, go to Japan. Or if you're good enough for the Japanese to have, we Chinese can have you too. Really nasty attacks on her. And then Liu Xiaobo backs off and analyzes why that can happen. It's, it's, it's very ugly misogyny from one point of view. I mean, cut off her breasts and throw them away and things like this. But done under the mantle of patriotism on the assumption that as long as I'm being patriotic, standing up against the Japanese, I can do anything I want, including having this fantastic victory over or sexual exploitation of a beautiful and famous Chinese woman. He has an essay on the rise of China in the world, sort of for international relations experts, and uh, not for you, Chris, for all of us. The Chinese communists, he says in this, er in this essay, are concentrating on economics, seeking to make themselves part of globalization, and are courting friends internationally precisely by discarding their erstwhile ideology. At home, they defend their dictatorial system any way they can, and around the world have become a blood transfusion machine for a host of other uh, smaller dictatorships. When the rise of a large dictatorial state that commands rapidly increasing economic strength meets with no effective deterrence from the outside, but only an attitude of appeasement from the international mainstream, and if the communists succeed in once again leading China down a disastrously mistaken historical road, he sees Mao as having done that, and he's not sure that the current trajectory of China is as rosy as perhaps some of the rest of you in this room think, but he doesn't. Uh, the results will not only be another catastrophe for the Chinese people, but likely also a disaster for the spread of liberal democracy in the world. He has two essays that comment on Tibet that I want to mention briefly to you. Uh, one is called, So Long as Chinese Have No Freedom, Tibet Will Have No Autonomy, where he starts by saying that the Chinese government, the propaganda department and so on, put the problem with Tibet or the Uyghurs as an ethnic conflict problem. And he says, no, it's not an ethnic problem fundamentally. Fundamentally, it's a dictatorial system versus Lao Baixing problem. And he documents this Lao Baixing ordinary people problem. He, he, he brings us through history of the People's Republic from the Mao era, the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution devastated Tibet and devastated the rest of China too. 
to the present day, the Dalai Lama cannot go back to Tibet, but mm, Li Hongzhi, the head of Falun Gong, can't go back to China. Democracy advocates like Hu Ping, Su Xiaokang can't go back to China. So there are a lot of parallels here. And that he sees as the fundamental contradiction, not an ethnic conflict. The other essay where he mentions Tibet is actually not formally about Tibet. It's about our U.S. President Barack Obama. He wrote it uh, the day after Obama's first election and starts by saying how heartwarming it is to him to see the world's strongest democracy elect a minority president. And then he goes into a fairly, uh, in fact, impressively well-educated review of U.S. history, where he says both the Democrat Party and the Republican Party have helped to make advances for black people in the United States. Abram Lincoln was a Republican. Emancipation Proclamation came from a Republican. George W. Bush appointed the first black secretary of state, and so on. Meanwhile, the Democrats, even more, you can document. And he knows a lot about U.S. history, goes through this. But then it comes around to Tibet because at the end of the essay, he said, if we Chinese were really smart, if our leaders were truly wise, they, and I quote here, they could invite the Dalai Lama back to China to serve as our nation's president our Barack Obama. Such a move would make best use of the Dalai Lama's stature in Tibet and around the world. Now, you chuckle in the audience, and properly so. And Liu Xiaobo is not dumb. He knows that this idea comes from somewhere west of Pluto. It could never happen. But it's still useful to articulate it. And I think perhaps the reason some of you chuckled is that you might agree with this insight he has that what if the Dalai Lama were suddenly the president of China? How much more China's image in cities like London would skyrocket? There's quite a resource there. And besides the Dalai Lama, Professor Mirsky knows about the Dalai Lama personally, he can talk later. He's a very reasonable, low-key, well-intentioned person, someone that you could deal with easily. Uh, Liu Xiaobo has an essay called The Gold Medal Syndrome. Uh, where he explains, in a sense, understands why China wants international recognition and prestige that comes in the form of Olympic gold medals or Nobel Prizes and so on, but then, as you can probably anticipate, decries the way it's done in China, ordinary athletic equipment for ordinary laobaixing in schools and so on isn't very well funded, but the Olympic gold medalists who are trained in camps are super well cared for and funded. But then he looks at it from the point of view of the athletes too. He tells a story about a woman, weightlifter, who didn't know that her mother died until a year and a half after the mother's death because her training was too important. They wouldn't tell her. They keep her in the camp. And young six-year-olds are being taught to dive, have their retinas destroyed, even though doctors on the scene say, don't have them still do that kind of dive. They have to do it because we're building for Olympic gold medals. He has a brilliant essay on Confucius where he argues, and here again his 
to me, surprising erudition comes out. He's clearly gone back and read Confucius and Zhuangzi, Mengzi, Hanfeizi, Muozi, ancient Chinese thinkers, and compares them. And he loves Zhuangzi's wit and vaulting imagination and metaphors. He really admires Mencius for his empathy with common people and Muozi as well. And he goes through this and by comparison finds Confucius a fairly conservative and selfish philosopher. You know, you hear the phrase like Jin or Jinji Tianxia, clear withdraw and cultivate your own character when things out in the world aren't going so well. And Liu Xiaobo says, No. A moral person, precisely when things aren't going well out in the world, should go out and try to help. So Confucius has it exactly backwards there. Um, and asks near the end of this essay, how costly has it been for the Chinese people that this particular thinker, Kongzi, this most sly, most smooth, most utilitarian, most worldly-wise Confucius, who shied away from public responsibility and showed no empathy for people who suffer, became there, the Chinese people's sage and exemplar for 2,000 years. He has an equally brilliant article on the 20th century Chinese writer Ba Jin, uh, about whose works in the 1930s he has mixed feelings. I think he would give him sort of a B, maybe a B minus, compared to Lu Xun, Shen Zongwen, Zhang Ailing, ones that he uh, admires more. But the essay is about how Ba Jin died at age 104 as a living vegetable, really, in a Shanghai hospital, and how when he died, the party elite came in, and there was a lot of panoply and a lot of praise of our great uh, Ba Jin. And for the last years of his life, the last decade of his life, Ba Jin really didn't have enough mental capacity to make his own decisions and yet was always quoted and pointed to. So it's an essay on how, an extreme case of how an authoritarian government uses uh, intellectuals. I'm going to stop here because uh, you said we'd stop at eight and I've already talked too long. I, I want to invite your questions or remonstrations or throwings of tomatoes. You already, you already have one question over there. Yeah, one question, please. Firstly, thank you very much for the brilliant uh, lecture. And I really agree about the uh, point of uh, internet you mentioned, because I, I'm from Guizhou province. And that year, I went to another city for, uh, for my bachelor's degree. And the first thing when I met my uh, schoolmates, the first thing they asked me is, do you hear about, what do you know about the woman who was raped in your province? Right. I say, what? I, I didn't really care or know about this yeah. event, how come people from other provinces are really care about this thing. Right. And I really agree about the reason you mentioned is like people in other part of China, they notice that the, the kind of similar things happened around them. So they mm-hmm. were um, get a sympathy for the victim and they right. will start to right. uh, spread the news. Right. Um, but Another thing I noticed that the situation in the Chinese internet is that people become more and more extreme. It's like if when they see um, government staff wear uh, 
an expensive watch, they will start to human uh, search engine. It's like they will search uh, 人肉搜索 Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah they will search every detail of this、uh, government stuff, and I think this kind of situation are really, really very extreme. So,、uh, my question is that: Do you think that these kind of things are Mm, uh, uh, really, naturally happened, or、um, uh, sophisticatedly proposed by someone behind them?、Uh, and、uh, Wait, and I, I didn't understand that last part of your question. And the question is that: Do you think these kind of opinion, these、uh, extreme opinions, yeah, and、um, naturally happen, yeah, or are、um, sophisticatedly proposed by someone who really wants to some anti-government or some kind of、uh, these actions? Uh, did everybody hear the question? Do I think these、uh, extreme opinions that appear in the internet are autonomous, or are they behind the scenes, guided by someone? Yeah, who really want to do something, and do you think it will really cause some real actions happened in China? Real actions. Happen. Yeah, thank you well, very much. Yeah, it's a good question, but of course, it's way, way too big. I can't possibly generalize about all of the comments on the internet. Certainly, the extreme comments that you mentioned, and the general so-so and so on, is. I don't think it could be all of them could be controlled by anybody. No, my, my feeling is that most of those things probably are autonomous. And by the way, if I left you with the impression that Liu Xiaobo thinks that all of the netizen comments are anti-government and are, you know, for bringing about healthy change, no, no, he doesn't think that. In fact, the essay on the mistreatment of the women who were targeted in this erotic essay, erotic carnival essay. I have a lot of examples in his essay where he doesn't sympathize with the commenters, and I don't think he doubts that they're、uh, they're uh, authentic comments. So there are a lot of different kinds of voices saying a lot of different kinds of things,、uh, and and his argument for why the internet is God's gift to the Chinese people isn't to say. That all of the indigenous opinion that pops up on the internet is good opinion? No, but it's the fact that there can be、uh, autonomous opinion. In fact, I'm sure he would say to these Fengqing types, whose opinions he completely rejects, that yes, you should have the right to get on the internet and express your thing. You know. Actually, I think it already has made a big difference in the way. Well, if you read his essay about the local cases where he finds that popular opinion forces local bullies to reverse their decisions and let people out of prison whom they'd imprisoned, you can see that there's change, and that wouldn't have happened before the internet. If your question is, do I think this is going to lead to a regime change kind of revolution? That again is way too big of a question. And I, in a unified way, no, I don't see that coming, and I don't think he would argue that it's coming. The reason why the internet is doing good is that all kinds of opinions can come out, and gradually, in total, that's good. It puts more pressure on. 
on people who would abuse others by keeping things secret. Thank you very much for your lecture. I'd like to raise a question about the tension between nationalism and democracy in Chinese public opinion or Chinese conception of themselves. Uh, Liu Xiaobo, it seems that, doesn't address very much about the tension between nationalism and democracy. He emphasizes too much democracy, which is introduced, uh, which is a concept introduced from the West. He risks provoking the very aggressive or ultra-nationalists who tend to argue that everything from the West tends to, um, ten- tends to be against Chinese national interests. So this is a very vulnerability of yeah. Liu Xiaobo to, the, um, to, to, to people who don't understand him or who don't appreciate his position. So, so, far, as I, so far as you know, uh, does he himself address this question about yeah. nationalism and democracy? Okay, the question about nationalism and democracy and the way you put it, that democracy is one kind of thing that comes in from the West and nationalism is Chinese and it's what Chinese people care about, he would reject as a distinction. Um, First of all, patriotism, he uses the word patriotism here and criticizes superficial or ultra-patriotism, but the key point for him isn't do we love China or not. He loves China. You you can't get around that. He's opposing the definition of patriotism that the Communist Party has put forward and that most Chinese people, young people, have bought, and that is, it's all one thing. You know, he's saying there's other ways to be a patriot. There's other ways to love China than to love an authoritarian government. And I would challenge you to answer that question yourself. If you want to be a patriot who loves China, I salute you, and I think he would. My question, and I can't say he would ask the same question, but he might. When you choose what to identify with when you want to be proud of China, you can choose history, literature, poetry, painting, calligraphy in traditional Chinese culture. In modern Chinese culture, you can choose technical ability. Most of the engineers at IBM are Chinese. You can choose Chinese food to be proud of. There's lots of wonderful things to tie your identity to and to love when you say Why would you pick a 19th century style authoritarian often violent government to be the thing that I identify with. That's me. I can't say what he would answer, but it would be close to, I think, what I just asked you. I'd like to hear your opinion of what he deals with on the level of corruption. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is that quite a few years ago, prior to the Olympics in China, there was a Chinese uh, friend of mine here who was uh, studying, etc., 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 
and she was telling me, finally, it took a long time, but finally she started to tell me about the corruption that uh, was pervasive in, in many parts of China mm. and how the exploitation of young children was so terrible and how she said, I, I feel very humiliated when I know that these things are occurring and that the Chinese government itself does nothing to really prevent it. And in a strange way, Greece, which is my country, there, there is that level, not the same pervasive corruption, but it exists. And again, the people there, when they, when they talk about it to me, mm -hmm. it takes a, a huge effort because of the humiliation level. So the question is, what would Liu Xiaobo say about ending corruption? Uh, here, I think, to say that he imports stuff from the outside world would be a fair comment. His answer to how to end corruption, first of all, it's not to have the Communist Party of China begin once again to have an anti-corruption campaign. I mean, these have dated from the late Mao years, anti-corruption, anti-corruption. But when you're in a system that is already corrupt and doesn't have the guards against corruption that one would need, however many times you tell yourself, now I'm going to go do anti-corruption, will be futile. I'm sure he would say that. But then your real question is, what should one do? And here I think the answer would be borrow from the... Western, if you want to call it that, idea of separation of powers uh, where you do have an independent press, where you do have independent courts. Um, and the reason Charter 08 was so provocative to the Communist Party of China, and you might even say the, re the fundamental reason why he's in prison today is that in that charter he calls for an end to one party rule. That was the really incendiary phrase. Uh, and I think he would say that. If you want to end corruption, you have to have an end to one party rule. That doesn't mean knocking down the Communist Party. The Communist Party still exists, but it has to compete with other political parties, and it has to compete in an environment of a free press where you can criticize. And I think he would say that is China's best hope for ending corruption. Never end it, of course. No, no one, I mean, Greece, the United States, none of us can completely end corruption. Problem is to reduce it beneath what it clearly is way out of control in China now. Hmm. <laughs> Professor Ling, uh, you wrote a very interesting article which I read recently, which is in The Guardian, but carrying an article from the New York Times about Mo Yen getting the Nobel Prize for Literature. Yeah. Um, in that, you also uh, quote something about his attitude to, say, dissident writers like Liu Xiaobo, and particularly yes. on Liu Xiaobo saying, uh, Mo Yen, uh, yes. you quoted as, as uh, saying that he, you, he hopes 
yes. that he will get out of prison, that he will be free soon. Right. But that's as far as he goes, uh, showing sympathy towards such uh, dissident writers who have been persecuted as Liu Xiaobo. Right. Right. What, what, on the other hand, would you, would you think that, because you're interpreting Liu Xiaobo on various topics, of course, all the way, so how, how would you see, or by now, I mean, Liu Xiaobo wouldn't have had probably time to actually react in any way to Mo Yen's getting the literary yeah. uh, Nobel Prize, but uh, to, to such a stand that Moyen takes, um, being still patronized by the Chinese government, by yeah. the party, yeah. uh, and, and winning you know, accolades in, right. in, in, in the world of li literature, right. uh, and, such and such writers as Moyen, right. who actually are uh, still within the system right. and are able to express right. uh, independent views, right. as many of the writers here in, did uh, recently in right. the... Um, London Book Fair, where a group of over 20 writers came officially approved, officially right. sent by the Chinese government, um, but expressing all sorts of different views, which right. I think you know were on the fringes of right. you know uh, of tolerance, but expressing their own personal right. views. Right, right. A minor correction: my essay was in New York Review of Books, not New York Times. But you're, yeah, you're, he does address that explicitly in the essay called. Um, to change a regime by changing a society. I told you part of what's in that essay, but he explicitly addresses in about two or three pages the question of the inside the system person who's doing his best to push, or her best, to push things forward versus the outside the system person. And he's very clear that we on the outside, where, he's, where he puts himself, must not condemn those. In fact, we should support them. We should view them as our colleagues and allies. They're, you know, if, and I don't know if this is true of Moyen, but of ones inside the system, there are quite a few that are doing their best, pushing and aiming at the same better China, more open China that we are. And he says that because he's critical of other outside the system people. He doesn't say so, but I think he means Wei Jingsheng, for example, or Xu Wenli, who are contemptuous of, you're still inside the system, you're cooperating with the enemy. He's against that. He's for both ends. But I have to put an asterisk next to Moyen. I, he knew Moyen in the 80s. They were friends and colleagues and stuff. And, but how much Moyen's pronouncement was from sympathy for Liu Xiaobo and how much of it, as I write in that piece, was a calculated way to say the minimum one would have to say in Moyen's position is something I just don't know. I don't know Moyen very well, and I don't know how to answer that. But certainly the Moyen type, who... Some of Moyen's novels are, are, are very sympathetic with the downtrodden. There's uh, the, 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 the Suan Taijigu novel, for example. Uh, so Moyen knows what suffering and oppression and so on are. But on the other hand, Moyen is very timid when it comes to going to the Frankfurt Book Fair or copying Mao Zedong's Jianghua and stuff. He just goes ahead and does it. And Liu Xiaobo would, would look at that and understand that. I, I'm very sure he wouldn't attack Moyen for doing that. But he would also say, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. 
Thank you, Professor Link. Uh, my question is more about um, a question of clarification. You mentioned the power question of what? clarification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned the power of people, uh, which can be detected. Uh, the power of people, the bottom-up uh, yeah. uh, power. Uh, does Liu Xiaobo refer to the individual level of power, or does he imply that power can only be generated on the collective or mass level? Oh, that's an easy question to answer. I'm, Good question, but easy to answer. Thank you. Individual and collective, but certainly individual. I mean, the whole key to his bottom-up, slow, you know, approach is based in individual morality. I, as a person, will, to the people around me, behave as an honest, authentic human being. I trust that they will too, and this will gather momentum and then become something that's more than an individual, yes. But he certainly would not want to ascribe to the idea that collective action or collective consciousness is the starting point. Individual morality and integrity is very important to him. When he went to the labor camp from 1996 to 1999, he came out writing a lot more about the phrase human dignity. He likes that phrase. Individual human dignity. Take one more from the center here, and then I know there are two who have been waiting here a long time. I haven't forgotten you, so you're next. Thank you, dear, dear Professor. I'm quite interested in your discussion of Ergao. Uh-huh. You know, really now in recent China, Ergo is really so popular in the net among young people, such as Baidu, Tieba, Li Yiba, things like that. Many you haven't heard of. What I'm quite interested in is that would that kind of so popular of Ergo would harm the discussion of real serious political questions? I mean, in such a political environment, how can this kind of Ergo can go forward to a more serious discussion of political values and public discussions? Uh, how can ugao, this sarcasm on the internet, be related to serious theoretical discussions? Yeah, I mean. My short answer is please read this article because he discusses exactly that. In his comparison of Havel, that's serious theory in his point of view, moral and political theory, and Kundera, who's sarcastic jokes, and he sees the same in China. Um, but as I tried to say, he, he, he sees them as helping each other, not opposing. The sarcasm at least does a couple of things. It softens the ground for change. If we're making fun of this regime and these power holders, they almost, that almost humanizes them in a sense. And when the end comes, which he hopes it will, then we're not as angry. We've already blown off steam. I don't know if I answered your question. Thank you very much. Thanks. Um, I mean, he very perceptively recognizes the, the connection between the uh, regime and the culture of the society. Uh, what is it that he uh, thinks is necessary to change in Chinese society? To uh, bring about uh, the uh, democracy or facilitate the incoming of democracy. 
Uh, maybe it's a difficult question to answer, but uh, you could also probably suggest, Evan, uh, if you, did you talk to what you call foreign st students who are coming to West or to what you call yeah. outside China, yeah. has he uh, any advice for them how they can contribute to change in China? Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, what was your first question about? Well, the first I remember. question was a difficult one. Then yeah, oh, the, what, what, what to do? It was yeah. just, what does he, what he thinks right. is, is yeah. need to be changed in okay. China. Okay, let me answer that first question on two levels. What needs to be changed? If you want a blueprint of what he thinks a model for Chinese governance should be, it would be Charter 08. It, it's really... It's not an extreme document. It's a very wenhe, moderate kind of thing, but it talks not only about constitutional government and elections and separation of powers, but things like independence of the judiciary, the subordination of the military to civilian government, the environment, education, all of these things. It's pretty well spelled out. So insofar as he would have a blueprint for you, that would be it. The other level, you're shaking your head. Let me try the second level and see if that works. Okay, let me try, and then if it doesn't work, come back once more. The second level where I would answer you would be more or less my answer to this uh, student's question about individual confidence and integrity. Learn to be, have human dignity yourself and treat others with human dignity and let that be the bottom up now, by society, did you mean something in between this human dignity level and the blueprint of government level? Society is more than I mean, society is more than the individuals. Right. It's very. I mean, it, it, one could be very non-controversial and right. suggest something very nice that be this or be that. Right. But when you are saying that, when you say that the society needs to be changed and needs to be uh, right. Uh, yes, right, uh, right. changed to bring in uh, the change of regime, right. uh, then some difficult questions are to be answered. What is it that he wants to change his society? Could you give me an example of what you think a good well, idea I mean, would be? Just the hierarchy. Right, right. Right. Uh, yeah, okay, I think I understand what you mean. Uh, I talked about the blueprint level and then the individual integrity level, and there's how do you get to society? Let me say that in general that would mean social groups. And there it's clear that he's in favor of social groups as long as they're voluntary. And his examples of cyber assembly would be that. Sometimes when you have cyber assembly around a case, like the Wang'an incident or something, the group that's left over, once the protest is over, can continue and does. And so you've got this grouping. He's for groups. He's for autonomous forming of groups that people are willing to join. And he says at one point, I'm opposed to making groups register with the Communist Party of China or with the government. You should be able to make your own group and have your own group. If by society you mean, for example, the family structure, I don't see anything in his writing that would say we should change the family structure, family loyalties and hierarchies insofar as they're built inside a family, I don't think he would oppose. Talk about it later yeah, more, okay? Yeah. 
Um, <coughs> thank you, that was fascinating. I mean, before I came to the lecture, I, my image of Lucia Bois was more like um, what you said when you talked to him on the phone before you started reading him. I mean, I, my image was that he's a, he's a hothead who can never yeah. uh, hold back and, and right. he wants to provoke and, right. and he's very extreme. But actually what you showed presenting his essay is that uh, like, he's a person with many, many nuances and, and yes. very... Sophisticated and a lot uh, more depth than I thought depth. before. Yeah. So, but then I was thinking: so why is it actually that the Chinese uh, government is afraid of him? I mean, isn't and isn't it that lots of the specific topics of the essays you um, you detailed? I mean, that's it's really it's perfectly possible to talk about this in the same way and make the same arguments in the Chinese public. So, like like the gold medals, moral decline, corruptions, right. Right. Uh, satire, the internet. Uh, right. What have you? So what has he done that, that makes it impossible for the government to accept what he says? I mean, I think right. what he has done is he's, he's been too often too direct in, this, in, in using such, you know, such words as regime change yeah. and end of party rule. Right. And um, so in the end, I mean, the, the inside-outsider question, isn't that a question of, of, of realism? I mean, I think most, most ordinary Chinese people and most Chinese intellectuals yeah. would say what he's calling for is just not realistic for contemporary yeah. China. Mm. And, and people in the government who, who hear this kind of provocateur using these statements all the time, they mm. say, actually, if he's that unreasonable, I mean, that's, he's dangerous. Yeah. So I can, I, I mean, if he's what, that unreasonable, he's not dangerous, you mean? He is dangerous. He is dangerous. Because he's constantly, he doesn't understand that this is completely, this is not realistic for contemporary China. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm also wondering what does some, some propaganda head or someone in the central government think about him? Why, mm -hmm. what, what would you tell them, you know, is he dangerous for them? Yeah. Yes, I think he is. Because I think, I think these ideas in Charter 08, for example, uh, although I just said they're mild and reasonable opinions, if they were spread in China, a lot of people would find them attractive, which is exactly the reason why the government suppresses Charter 08, because they're afraid that people would find them attractive and that it would lead to faster regime change. So I think from that point of view, the government's not wrong to see him as dangerous. If your question is in part what precisely in all of his thinking makes them most nervous, the best way to judge that is to read the the uh, the panjueshu that we have translated at the end, the, the indictment against him, where six articles plus Charter 08 are named. I told you about two of the six briefly. Charter 08 has things like we should have better care for the environment and things that anybody inside or outside the system would find easy to accept. I think the key part of Charter 08, and I think that Charter 08 was the main thing that they put him in prison for, the key part was the line about end of one party rule, because they just can't swallow that. And why do they come down hard on him and not on others? is partly because they choose him, and he willingly did this, by the way. I was translating Charter 08 for a month before they published it. He sent it to me in advance while well, the others did first. And he was calling me up saying, change this, change that, don't change this and that. 
and he was running around getting signatures. He was very active in Charter 08 at the very end. But the main thing he did for Charter 08 was what I thought he told his colleagues, I'll be the one to take the rap. And he, they, he didn't take the rap. But from the government's point of view, you see, the purpose of giving him a heavy prison sentence and publicizing that fact is to squelch the whole movement, not just him. I mean, let's face it, the reason he got the Nobel Prize, in my view, was that the government gave him an 11-year sentence. He may not have got it, or at least not that year, if that hadn't happened. So the government is, 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 is taking him as the example to show that we're going to squelch this kind of charter, this kind of idea, because we don't want it to spread. Now, the other 303 original signatories of the charter also got visits to, from the police, invitations to tea, like um, mostly soft, meaning, where did you hear about this charter? Why did you sign it? Do you regret signing it? Wouldn't you be better off just reading your books or doing your job? Don't you see that your friends have better lives than you? Can't you have a better life by not getting involved in this kind of stuff? And the effort was to, to squelch it any way they could. First expunge it from the internet, then make an example of Louis Yalbois, then go to all the others and try to talk them out of it. So I think the government is genuinely afraid of it, yes. And to be honest, I think there is some reason why they should be afraid of it. Not that I sympathize, obviously, but I think, yeah. I can see there's still hands going up, but it, it is gone 8 o'clock now, and I said we'd finish at 8, I and mean, I think we could easily go on all night discussing this topic. It's, gonna, it, it's been fascinating. But also I do want to leave some time because, as I said at the beginning, there are books available um, outside, and you know, Professor Link can sign some copies. I regret now buying a Kindle version because you can't sign a Kindle version, can you? <laughs> but anyway, um, thank you very much indeed, Perry. Thank you.